It's another delightful opportunity and a, yay, a great privilege that you and I have been given to assemble for the express purpose and in the name of the God of heaven. It's always our desire, of course, to approach him in the way that he has ordered and commanded of us. And in many ways, that'll be a fair amount of the lesson tonight, the access to God. As we prepare our minds for a consideration of that topic, I did want to at least make one or two announcements that I failed to, to mention to Gary, so that, that certainly is a fault that rests with me. As you perhaps know, next Sunday, uh, there'll be a gospel meeting beginning at the Leeville Church of Christ down in Wilson County, and they've invited me to be the speaker for that, and so my family and I, Denise and I, won't be here next Sunday, but uh, arrangements have already been made for the speakers and those to teach the classes, so I know it'll be a wonderful time of marvelous presentation of the book of God, but I would ask that you keep that gospel meeting in your prayers. That's the Leeville Church of Christ there in, uh, in uh, it's actually between Lebanon and Mount Juliet, but we're looking forward to being with them. Held a meeting there several years ago, and they've invited us to return, so hopefully it'll be just a powerful idea of presenting what would be most needful for those folks there at the Leeville Church of Christ. In addition to that, this coming Thursday, uh, Vacation Bible School at the Montrose Church of Christ over in, uh, in uh, Smith County, down near Defeated, and I'll be speaking there again for the VBS on Thursday night of this week. So if you would, keep that in your prayers. And, and as always, if you have an opportunity to come and be a part of any of those things, I know that not only the brethren there, but of course we'd be delighted to, to see you as well. Access to God. Isn't it interesting to think about the saga unfolded in the scriptures really from Genesis chapter 1 onward? In fact, this next slide, as we just think about some of the issues that this touches, it fits into a sequence of lessons you and I have been considering for many weeks now, knowing God. We began that series by considering the importance of knowing God. In fact, the eternal destiny of you and me hinges upon knowing Him and Him knowing us. With that, we looked at the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We appreciated the manifestation of the marvels of Him in the gospel. Following that, we cast a spotlight upon His name and found that that name Yahweh carries such tremendous and great attributes. Following that name, we began to look at His omnipresence, His omniscience, and in fact, the features that you and I can even remember touching His judgment, His love, His mercy, and His grace. Most recently, last Sunday night, we looked at both His glory and His sovereignty. I suppose as we continue this journey, maybe tonight in fairness, why don't we pose that situation that seems so prevalent based on the early chapters in Genesis. You remember it with me. Adam and Eve at one time had a marvelous relationship with God. They were in fellowship with Him. Prior to sin entering the world, they were His special creation. They knew Him, and He knew them. But then they sinned. At that point, they were in fact forced to leave the garden. A flaming sword was put there guarding the way of the tree of life. And you remember with me that there was a separation between them and God. They did not have the access they had before. It had been cut off. It had been ended. That access was no longer the status quo. With that, you remember that there began an unfolding, powerful consideration of God's means whereby man could come to Him. How was man to have access to Him? 
as we begin to develop that portrait, that consideration. Let's turn the slide to this next one and build it up by first looking at the developments in the Old Testament. As we do that, of course, many matters come to mind, some of which have been topics frequently mentioned by us in the Sunday morning Bible class as we've considered Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But some brief comments will certainly be in order. Looking at them as follows, you'll notice the approach to God, the coming to Him is not on an arbitrary basis. It is not merely a matter of human desire and ingenuity and creativity. The approach to God is carefully conscripted and it is carefully set forth. In fact, I would call to your attention that text in Hebrews chapter 12. As it is mentioned in verses 18 to 23 of that chapter, there is a reference made to those who would touch the mount, referring to that Mount Sinai, of course, if they did so unwittingly, even so much. As an animal doing so, it was thrust through with a dart. The attempt to come to God when He had not authorized it, when He had not affirmed the means by which it was done, it was penalized by death. It was penalized, in fact, very severely. When you and I think then about how the, the approach to God must never be attempted carelessly, it must not be attempted in a means different from the truth which He has set forth, Maybe that brings us to at least notice a few quick thoughts from a few selected Old Testament references. In Psalm 24, verse 3, questions like these are asked. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Now that's a fair question. David asked it. Who has the right to ascend before the presence and the access of God to be appreciated? By the fact that David asked that question, it was not given to everybody. There are some in our world who today would have us believe that access to God is basically free and open to anybody who has even the smallest modicum of desire to make it so. And that simply is not the case. It wasn't true in the Old Testament either. For instance, as we begin to develop this, in Psalm 145, verse 18, the psalmist set forth before all of those of that day that God is near to those who call on Him. Those who did call in a careful way, in an appropriate way, they were the ones for whom God was near. He wasn't near just everybody. Might we use that at least to prepare us for some messages in just a few moments? Isn't it still the case? God, by the nature of closeness, isn't merely near everyone. It's true He is omnipresent. He knows what everyone's doing, but in terms of maintaining a full relationship with everyone, He does not. He is near to those that called on Him then. We'll find later that He's also near those who have that same attitude and that same following of obedience today. As you and I then think about calling on Him, let's highlight one more matter before we leave the Old Testament. One of the things that's so sweet is the remembrance of that tabernacle. For in that tabernacle, God made promise that His name would be there. Exodus 25, verses 9 and 10. And in that promise, we will remember, there was a reflection and a consideration of that mercy seat. And God said, I will meet with you. But one of the first things you and I remember, just as surely as His presence was described in that Holy of Holies, there was, however, entrance for only a selected single individual. 
in Leviticus chapter 16 is unfolded for you and me, the events of the Day of Atonement. It was on that day and that day only. The high priest could enter into that place in which the mercy seat was found. It was in that place where he could appreciate the very presence of that great God of heaven. He could enter. God authorized nobody else to enter that place. They did not have direct access in that same way to him. You'll notice there was thus a message of separation. The rank and file people of Israel were not able to come into that most holy place. They were forever barred from it. They were separated and distanced from Him. Their access to God, if you please, was extraordinarily limited. But maybe in light of all those things, we begin to ask, what was the problem? If God loved these people, why did He not just openly invite them to come into that mercy seat, to that place, and enjoy a period of considerable fellowship with Him? You and I will remember the problem was sin. Just like Adam and Eve had committed, that's what separated them from God. In Isaiah 59, beginning in verse number 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. The problem was the sin of the, of the people. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. That's the closing words of Jeremiah chapter 3, specifically verse 25. With that reflection, we no doubt then raise to this observation. If sin was the problem, there was then no ultimate justification for them. That was not yet to be appreciated and had. Therein, of course, lies the matter. God is holy. One must be holy to come to Him. He is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity, to borrow the language of Habakkuk 1.13. And didn't the psalmist say in Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, that God will not have fellowship with those who do not, in fact, have holiness in them. As you and I transition to the New Testament, then we have set before ourselves a significant problem. Access to God surely is a desirable thing. Being where He is, having a complete and thorough ability to fellowship Him, and yet they, due to sin, could not enjoy it. What about you and me? We know that there was a monumental set of events occurring near the beginning of the New Testament era. Those events cataloged for us as you and I begin to unfold it here. There was blood that was shed that can cleanse sin. It wasn't the blood of turtle doves or goats or calves, and it wasn't the blood of any animal. It was the blood of, of course, the sinless Son of God. No wonder the opening words in the opening verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1 verse 1, turns our attention not from those events of the Old Testament, but this is the generation Jesus Christ, leading up from Abraham to him. And we find from that point forward the remarkable story of that one who, in fact, is such that his blood can cleanse sin. I would call to your attention Hebrews 9, verses 26, 27, and 28. We find then, as the Hebrew writer recalled the events of the Old Testament and painted a very dark and bleak picture about how that sin couldn't be completely forgiven, 
because that precious blood had not yet been shed, all they could do is look forward to a time when that would take place. And then the Hebrew writer said, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And to him that looked for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He did shed precious blood, sinless blood, blood that can cleanse sin. For look at verses like this one, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. A moment ago, Jonathan led us in prayer, and he made mention in that prayer about the blood shed on the cross and how you and I are rightfully the ones deserving to be there, and yet he shed that blood, and that blood can cover my sins and your sins. May we thus appreciate that the covering for sin begins and basically ends with a very mention of the blood of Christ Jesus. He is the door, John chapter 10, basically verses 1 through 10. But as Jesus so poignantly pointed out, I am the door. He that entereth by me shall go in and out and find pasture. And he was identifying there that entrance leading to salvation and righteous living. He is the door. Did you notice the singular nature of that door? He is not one door among many. He is the door. As he made reference to himself in that way, didn't he thus appreciate at least in that way, access to God through Himself. Maybe it's fair to remember then that holiness is what's required. When you or I are engulfed, covered with, and thus overwhelmed in sin, we in that state are not in a position to come before God because He is holy. And holiness has no fellowship with unholiness. We must be holy. Those sins must be remitted and forgiven. Isn't it fair then to observe in Hebrews 12, 14, Without holiness there is no access to God. No man shall see the Lord without it. As we begin to ask those penetrating questions of ourselves, the major thrust and result of access to God is a matter well known to so many of us. But as we develop some of its particulars, let us revisit that passage that Brother Wendell read a moment ago. In John 14, verse 6, But a very little while prior to the cross, the events really of that 14th chapter of John were stated the night before He was crucified. The cross was just a few hours in His future, and He could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Although the agony and the pain that rested yet shortly in his future were truly great indeed, he nonetheless knew that that would be the one and only thoroughfare, the only channel by which access to God could be enjoyed. And yet the nerve of many, perhaps through the centuries, sent to proclaim that the way to God is sometimes by prayer, sometimes by money, sometimes by influence or otherwise. And the Lord forevermore asserted Access to God is only by Him. As we then develop that access to God, look at some of the additional ways the New Testament writers lead us to think about it. In the 18th verse of 1 Peter chapter 3, although that passage is one that often might be used to highlight many other truths, look at the simple statement made in it about access to God. 1 Peter 3 verse number 18 I would ask that you begin reading with me in verse 17. 
For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. In the midst of this circumstance, Peter was addressing individuals who were suffering. Their lot was not pleasant. Persecutions were hard. Matters were greatly difficult, and their faith was being challenged. In light of that, Peter said, you need to remember this, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. If you're suffering, don't you ever forget he suffered. What's next? The just for the unjust. You and I, if we suffer, realize we're the unjust ones. We have been the ones guilty of sin. He never sinned, and yet he suffered. What's next? That he might bring us to God. It is only he that is able thus to close that chasm separating us and God. Only his blood can in fact break a bridge, if you please, beyond and over that gorge and bring you and me to God. How does the verse end? Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Indeed, as Jesus our Savior was put to death in the flesh, but nonetheless resurrected by the Spirit, we recognize that by that blood that He shed, He's able to bring you and me to God. Don't you love that terminology? He leads or brings us to God. He doesn't just point the way. He lived a life of sinless perfection such that you and I can walk that thoroughfare and we go too can come to God. That text in 1 Peter 3.18 challenges us with that text of Ephesians 2. We each remember the saga that's unfolded beginning in verse 12 of that chapter. May I invite you to turn there as we look at an interesting statement that Paul on that occasion made. Let's not forget we're discussing access to God. How did Paul describe it? I would ask that you think very seriously, beginning in verse 12 with me, about the state of affairs descriptive of you and me apart from God. It's not going to sound pretty. That at that time ye were without Christ. Every sinner then imagines. There was a time he or she, including you and me, at one time were without Christ. What else, Paul? Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Sometimes you and I refer to an alien sinner. You see the verse from which that kind of language is found. One who as an alien has never entered into the fold of sweetness of a fellowship with God. That person has never enjoyed access since the time of reaching the age of accountability. What else, Paul? And strangers from the covenants of promise. Those covenants so often spoken of in the Scriptures. A covenant is that binding agreement and yet here are individuals who, he says, are strangers from the covenant of promise. The covenant that makes promise of that which is eternal life and all the goodness that proceeds with it. Finally, he says, having no hope. Isn't it amazing and so tragically sad to be without hope? Maybe you and I have known of someone in a circumstance like that. The doctor reaches a point and says, I have done everything that modern medicine knows to do. My friend, at this point, there's nothing else medicine can do. It's hopeless. Think about the weight of those words. And yet, think about the weight of them spiritually. Here were individuals who had no hope. And finally, without God in the world. Notice, they were without God. They needed access among all other things. They needed access to God. Let's turn to verse 13. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And there it is, isn't it? Individuals who at one time were strangers, aliens, without hope and without God. He says now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you're made nigh by the blood of Christ. That blood was shed by the Savior, and through that blood you who once were distanced and who once were afar are now drawn near. Thus the next verse reads like this, For he, that's Jesus, is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments containing ordinances. For to, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Isn't that language of verse 16, moving, compelling language? We've been reconciled to God. We who once were enemies and aliens and hopeless, we've been reconciled to Him. That's good news, don't you think? No wonder the gospel, that word means good news. As we go further, you'll notice this kind of development proceeds in so many additional places. Colossians 1.21 uses the words enemies. You and I as sinners are enemies to Him. Now, you and I might ask, how is an enemy brought near? How does an enemy have access? We know, of course, it happens in exactly the same way. Paul again describes the blood of Jesus and what's available to you and to me. There are times when I suppose it can happen that you and I lose the appreciation of the force of that blood. I realize there's a weekly memorial in which we take the fruit of the vine, reminding us on every single occasion we take it. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that if we fail to remember that blood, if we fail to remember that body, it's as good as putting him to death all over again. And Paul's quick to remind us that God will not look lightly upon those who fail to discern the body and the blood of Christ. But yet as we ponder that blood, it is such a powerful thing May we never lose sight of its significance. Maybe that significance then will lead us to appreciate that it's truly, Hebrews 7, 19, accessed by Christ and His blood by which you and I can come to God. Doesn't it then sound so cheap when men have tried to change that message? Coming to God now merely requires one to fall on his knees and make some statement. He needs, some would say, to do nothing more than some minor amount of mental reflection on the Christ. We've learned so far tonight that access to God is by Christ, but we need to add some additional meat to that skeleton. This next slide is an attempt to do that. For after all, verses like these quickly come to our consideration. Let us ask then about the access to God through Christ. Hebrews eleven six says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. Notice it says, He that cometh to God. Notice again, we're directly discussing access to God, and there the inspired writer affirms it hinges on faith. One must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. May we then suggest in light of that faith, no wonder James quickly affirmed in James 4 verse 8, 
the reality of that same demand. You and I now realize that when Jesus spoke then about His blood, and the New Testament speaks about the efficiency and the capability of it, He's leading us directly to thinking about verses like these. I think it's going to sound rather familiar. Whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a direct statement of Acts 2.21 as well as Romans 10.13. That sounds like the text you and I noted from Psalm 145 verse 18 earlier in the lesson tonight. Could it be that calling on the Lord was demanded today? Could it be that that's what was demanded then? You and I should appreciate that with the changing of the covenant, Maybe calling on the Lord today demands slightly different things than it did then. Why don't we then ask about those specifics? Isn't it sweet to hear Peter describe the redemption, the salvation that's able to be enjoyed? 1 Peter 1.17, to those who call on Him. And yet how many refuse to do it? They think that they're good enough on their own. I live an acceptable life. I'm not one that's murdered anybody. I'm not one that has slept with another man's wife. I'm not one that has called difficulty by way of kidnapping or stealing. I think I'm okay. That kind of comment fails to realize that the problem is not anything other than sin. Might I ask, does good living cleanse sin? Does living that one might call wholesome lead to remission of sin? And nowhere in the Bible is that taught. Surely in light of that, we're ready to look at passages like this one. If it is the case then that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and that is the statement of Romans 10, 13, how does one call on the Lord? Let me invite you to reflect upon the man named Saul and what was told to him by the man named Ananias. The conversion of Saul is shared in three chapters in the New Testament. One of them is Acts chapter 9, one of them is Acts chapter 22, one of them is Acts chapter 26. In Paul's own words, he himself recounted that occasion in which he was blinded on the road to Damascus. You may appreciate with me the following scene. On that occasion, he carried on a conversation with the Son of God himself. Did Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You may remember Paul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He knew exactly the one to whom he was speaking. He called him Lord. Jesus had identified who he was. I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. Paul had no question as to who he was speaking with. Yet that conversation was not enough to save him. For in fact, it's still true he was made blind as a consequence of that bright light shining about him. And he was expressly told, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Saul was still in his sin, even while he trudged those three days into Damascus. And while he waited on that occasion for the information whereby he was then told what to do. Saul was not cleansed of his sins on the road to Damascus. He was still in his sins when he got to the city. And isn't it amazing that Ananias, of course, was prompted by the God of heaven to go and visit him. And these are the words that Ananias told him. Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 
isn't it still fascinating to notice he was told to call on the name of the Lord, but to do so in a particularly specific way. Arise and be baptized, and in so doing wash away thy sins. Saul's sins could not be forgiven, could not be removed, could not be remitted, separate and apart from baptism. It's no wonder then the New Testament highlights that attribute of baptism and does so with such force and such power. When you and I then think about those statements then made to Saul, doesn't it sound a lot like some words that Jesus himself shared? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The connection, of course, is easy to make. The world, the individuals thereof, are engulfed in sin, and that sin cannot be forgiven separate and apart from adherence to baptism. And in that baptism, of course, as a faithfulness given to that, those individuals, of course, could then be cleansed from sin. That message is remarkable. For after all, isn't that the manifestation of faith? Time and again, that's the way the book of Acts presents it. Those who had faith did what the Lord told them to do and what His inspired messengers told them to do. I would submit to you, in light of that thought, the closing sentiments on that slide then come before us. We've come full circle. Access to God is only through Christ, but furthermore, in the specifics of that which Christ has delivered, He Himself said one must believe. He Himself stated one must repent. He Himself affirmed one must confess. He Himself declared one must be baptized. Though the human family may often bring its questions upon the validity of any of them, it's the Master who Himself said that these are the requisites whereby sins are forgiven and access to God is obtained. It is with that the Bible closes in the book of Revelation. For there we find pictures like these. Revelation 7, verses 13 and following. You remember the scene. There was an innumerable host gathered around that heavenly throne. And in that host, we appreciate they were described in a specific way. They were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, not washed in the blood of the Lamb, then you're not there. Washed in the blood of the Lamb is a reminder of the very means whereby Jesus had told to Nicodemus, except you be washed, except, of course, as he told him, you be baptized. You cannot be saved. When Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus, one must, of course, have both the Spirit and the blood. One must enjoy the blessings available in the water of which Jesus spoke to him on that occasion. As all of that comes together, no wonder the one final thought of these. What those individuals in the Old Testament didn't have is the very thing you and I do enjoy. They couldn't enter in the most holy place in that tabernacle. You and I, though, are promised in Hebrews 10, 19, we, because of the blood of Christ, have access to the most holy place. The access, of course, to heaven. Access to where the Master now is. Where the God of heaven awaits. No wonder Jesus put it like this in John 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. If you and I really want to have access to God, that means we surely want to be where He is. Not just for a while, but eternally. And Jesus therein stated that He's coming back for those who have made preparation, for those who have made ready. Have you and I made ready? Are we continually making sure that we're always ready? The watchfulness demanded in the New Testament is so very clear, isn't it? In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, a description is given about the fact Jesus is coming back at a time when nobody expects Him. He's coming back at a time when it seems very few, if any, will appreciate the expectancy of it. Or didn't He say, there's not a single man that knows the day or the hour. But we must always be ready. Access to God can be enjoyed. And that fellowship is what you and I have through the blood of Christ when we're obedient to what must be done to access that blood. As I stated earlier in the lesson tonight, access to that blood doesn't just happen because we'd like it to. It doesn't happen just because someone says that it does. It doesn't happen just because we have a feeling that may suggest it. Isn't it still true that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Who can know it? That statement is found in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart can be deceived. We must rely upon what this book says for assurance and certainty about access to God. We've highlighted it already in the course of the lesson this evening from the lips of Jesus himself. If you don't have access to the Father... It must be a very sorrowful state. Don't you feel lonely? Don't you feel separated from all the good blessings available to those that are faithful? Every spiritual blessing is in Christ, Ephesians 1 verse 3, and you don't have them if, in fact, you're still covered in sin. The blood of Jesus tonight is available to you. The water behind me is ready. If there's somebody here who you know that you have reached an age whereby you know wrong from right. You know that you're in sin. You know Jesus died for you. And you know that at this point, things are not well with you because you haven't yet attended to obedience to that gospel commission. If we could help you tonight, remember, believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then humbly and submissively be baptized. Baptism, though the world might have you to believe, It's an inconvenient, cumbersome act. It is a joyous time of celebration. You enter that water clouded in sin, overcome and engulfed therein, and you come out of it with not a single sin accounted to your your name. They've all been forgiven, every one of them. No wonder it's a time of rejoicing. No wonder it's a time of celebration. If tonight you need to attend to that, if you just walk down this aisle and let us assist you and help you we'd be happy to do it but if you have become a christian but that was perhaps a long time ago and you've forgotten the access to god is such a sweet and powerful and basic thing you perhaps would like to come back to your first love tonight we hope that you do but realize that that blood that was so freely able to cleanse your sins at one times in the past can still do it but in fact you must make the decision You need to again come before us if your sins are known publicly and invite us to pray to God on your behalf. 
for we would be delighted to do it, and he would be delighted to forgive you. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, your access to God hinges on your obedience to the very things that lead to the blood of Christ. And if we could help you in that way tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. Why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing?